This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Five years ago, C.K. Prahalad published a book titled The Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid, in which he argues that multinational companies not only can make money selling to the world's poorest, but also that undertaking such efforts is necessary as a way to close the growing gap between rich and poor countries. Key to his argument for targeting the world's poorest is the sheer size of that market, an estimated 4 billion people. How has Prahalad's book, a revised 5th anniversary edition of which has just been published, affected the behavior of companies and the well-being of consumers in the years since its publication? Knowledge at Wharton checked in with the author for an update, including examples of specific companies that are implementing bottom-of-the-pyramid strategies. Mr. Prahlad, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm happy to be here. Uh, In the five years since The Fortune at at the Bottom of the Pyramid was published, what impact have your ideas had on companies and on poor consumers? The the impact has been quite uh, interesting and uh, very profound in many ways, much more than one could have expected. For example... Uh, several of the multilateral institutions, uh, World Bank, UNDP, IFC, including USAID, have fundamentally accepted the idea that involvement of the private sector is critical for development. It is also interesting that, and I do that in the book, I ask 10 CEOs of companies as diverse as uh, Microsoft, ING, DSM, GSK, Thomson Reuters, uh, to essentially reflect on whether the book has had some impact in in the way they think about the opportunities. Uniformly, everybody, whether it's Microsoft or GSK, essentially said not only that uh, it has had some impact, it has uh, changed in many ways, the way they approach innovation, the way they approach new markets. I also asked people to update the case studies that were in the original book, and it was a pleasant surprise for me that almost all of them had grown, uh, improved their uh, offerings, and they were doing quite well in this marketplace. And I also wrote a new introduction on what are the lessons we have learned. So while the issue of poverty still remains, and it's not going to be solved in the next 10 years, the active involvement of the private sector and its role in poverty alleviation from other players and traditional stakeholders have been quite surprising. And... We shouldn't forget it's just five years old as an idea. Uh, We'll come back to the major lessons in a minute, but could you share some of the most significant examples of companies that have employed your principles uh, during the past five years? Well, I think, uh, take for example, the whole idea of netbooks, uh, the $200 computer that is selling like hotcakes in the United States, uh, over 2 million sold last year. The original idea was to develop a suitable, reasonably sophisticated laptop for the poor people in countries like India. Uh, 
So that idea not only is going to work in countries like India, it's also traveling back to countries like the United States and having a spectacular success. And there are many, many stories like this of innovations coming from uh, BOP influencing what is happening here and certainly influencing the BOP market opportunities itself. Right. Could we now talk about a little bit about the major lessons companies have learned uh, through serving yes, consumers? I would be very happy to do that. I think when uh, the book came out uh, five years ago, there was a fair amount of skepticism, and rightly so. While people could not uh, just dismiss the idea, uh, they knew it was an interesting and a different idea. Uh, they could not walk away from the compelling videos and the stories in the book. There was some skepticism whether this is going to work. I think in, in a very short period of five years, many of the concerns have been put to rest. I can illustrate it with a simple... Um, let me illustrate it with one example of one industry which has broken many of the myths and cleared the way for uh, profound rethinking about the opportunity at the bottom of the pyramid. And what I have in mind is the wireless cellular phone industry. For the first time in human history, four billion people are connected. Now, of course, when you talk about four out of the total six billion people, uh, it is a large number maybe two and a half billion people are BOP consumers, as described in the book. So the first thing that has happened is that this dramatic shift in the use of cellular phones and the dramatic buildup of subscribers is taking place across the world, whether it's sub-Saharan Africa, South Africa, Latin America, India, Southeast Asia, and China, and all the companies in every one of these areas, whether it is Celtel, Safaricom, MTN, Airtel, Reliance, Globe in Philippines, all of them are making money. So the first uh, lesson here is if you can find the right sweet spot in terms of business models, there is a really huge and very profitable opportunity. For example, India alone is uh, creating more than 12 million subscribers per month. And it's not per year, but per month. So this is not a market that any multinational, whether it's Nokia, Ericsson, IBM, Samsung, Motorola, can totally ignore. And uh, there is a significant opportunity here. The second myth that people had was can poor people and possibly illiterate people uh, adopt new technologies? Do they need new technologies? Cell phones have again shown that the rate of adoption of this technology has been spectacular, if nothing else. So people just understand how to use it, and they're using it to good advantage. Third that in order to participate effectively, fundamentally new ecosystems have been created, including business model changes. For example, pay-per-use, using of cards, 
prepaid cards uh, has become the norm in most parts of the world. We are moving away from average revenue per user, which has been the core metric of this industry for more than 50 years, to profitability per minute of cell phone time. We are also moving away from very intensive business called carriers to very low capital intensity through building alliances and partnerships. For example, Airtel in India uh, has outsourced its IT networks to IBM and its capacity to Emirates and Nokia, and it has built a large number of application developers. So essentially, if you look at what has happened, Airtel has found a way of converting its fixed costs into variable costs and create, creating an ecosystem that dramatically reduces capital intensity. And the most important of all these is that we're creating a very large pool of micro-entrepreneurs, small shops which uh, download minutes for your phone, which uh, allows you to uh, charge your phone. So there's a large number of entrepreneurs which are create, being created. And finally, we're finding that uh, BOP markets can be an extraordinary source of innovation. Uh, if I look at Safaricom with the M-Pesa, which is, stands for mobile cash, is allowing poor Kenyans who do not have access to banks to transfer money from A to B through text messaging. So you go to your agent, uh, you pay the money, and uh, receive an e-mobile money or e-money, which you can text to your friend, and he can go with an encrypted message and pass that text and collect real cash. So this is not a small business. Seven million consumers are involved, and average every day, there are a million transactions of 20 to 25 million dollars, uh, 20 to 25 dollars per transaction, total of 20 to 25 million dollars every day. This is bypassing banks, and the same way remittances. If I'm a Filipino maid working in Singapore, I can send money to my grandmother at home through uh, SMS message. So fundamentally, new applications are also being developed. So the BOP is not only a source of uh, markets as micro-consumers, there is also lots of innovation opportunities. So just taking one industry, we are now able to see what profound impact understanding and working with BOP markets can have. Uh, I think all the examples you cite are fascinating, and I saw a recent cover story in The Economist that uh, highlighted some of them. Uh, where do you see this trend of using mobile technology creatively going in which mobile services can be harvested to serve poor consumers in various ways? I think uh, uh, mobile is going to be in health, in education, in uh, managing pandemics like SARS and swine flu, and so in public health. Uh, it's going to be in entertainment. Uh, video games, uh, and a wide variety of things. The mobile platform, if you look at uh, the recent story 
on video gamers are now saying, why can't I download uh, not necessarily every complex game, but most of it, why can't I create a seamless integration of my play at home in front of a PC and also on the go, um, whether I can play with a mobile platform. This is becoming a major opportunity for video gamers. And so is for education. There is absolutely no re reason why we cannot modularize everything from simple additions to uh, multiplication and so on, and teach children how to learn by themselves on their mobile phone and take tests remotely, which are measured, uh, feedback is given to them, and if they don't pass the test, you start all over again. So I see infinite possibilities, and I believe a lot of these innovations are going to come from BOP markets because so, there is a necessity there. Absolutely. Now, what are the major obstacles you have found companies face when they try to implement uh, these uh, bottom of the pyramid strategies? I think there are uh, three types of uh, problems. The first is mental. Uh, if you start by saying uh, poor people don't have money, therefore they cannot be our consumers, uh, you already have a big impediment. Sometimes it's useful for us to go back to our own history and ask the question, single sewing machine used to cost $100 and the poor in this country could not buy. So they came out with $5 a month payment plan and then the rest of it is history. Single sewing machine became the first global company out of the United States. Uh, same thing with Model T. Making a car for $250 enabled farmers to move out of villages and then to travel to small towns and so on. So the first is mental model. It is not what, uh, how much income people have. It's how to create the capacity for them to consume. That means we have to change from a mentality of my current cost plus profit equals to price to a much more consumer-driven price minus profit must equal cost. That means you start with affordability. The second impediment is the assumption that we can take existing products and uh, somehow sell them in these markets uh, is unlikely to work because I think <clears throat> we need to fundamentally understand the consumer needs and build products. And if you focus on that, many times we improve on our existing products in the West. Let me give a simple example. GE has been in the game of producing EKG machines for a long time. They sell for about $10,000 in the United States. They are big and clunky, they're 60 pounds or so, and they sit in a corner in, uh, in hospitals. They asked a simple question three years ago, four years ago, how do we get a EKG machine that doctors can use in rural India? That means it must be battery operated, it must be light so people can carry, it must have a printer attached so the doctor or the paramedic can read it on the spot. And it better be connected 
so that if they are not able to figure out what's going on, somebody remotely in a large hospital can diagnose and give a message on what needs to be done. So they created a product which weighs three pounds. It's networked, has a printer, and can travel quite easily. Battery operated. Now, it sells for $800 rather than $10,000. It is a better improved functionality, uh, extremely good machine, and it is technically the equivalent of what we have here, except it is more functionality. So now FDA is approved, so it will be sold here, and it's already being sold in Europe, and it's being sold in China. Actually, it was co-developed partially, mostly in India, but partially in China. So I find continuously that DOP is not only expensive, micro-consumers and markets, it's micro-producers, and more importantly, it is opportunities for innovation, whether Stata Nano or G's EKG machine or netbooks, uh, there's a huge opportunity when you focus on these markets, making fundamentally interesting innovations. Uh, you referred to the, the, the development of the GE EKG machine for uh, rural markets. Uh, do you find there is a difference between rural and urban markets at the bottom of the pyramid? And how does the strategy to reach consumers in each of these markets differ? I think the Latin American development of poverty is much more urban poverty. There is some rural poverty, but it's primarily urban poverty. It's uh, shaggy towns in uh, Sao Paulo, Rio, and so on, or Mexico City. India, you have both urban poverty and shanty towns, but also 70% of India still lives in villages. So there is a tremendous amount of rural market opportunity that requires extremely complex distribution and logistics frameworks, which is somewhat different from just being in an urban environment where at least the logistics and distribution is reasonably simple. So there is some difference between how do you access rural consumers compared to urban consumers uh, at the BOP level. We were speaking earlier about the obstacles. Uh, could you address some of the cultural and communication barriers that prevent companies from able to serve consumers at the I bottom think. of the pyramid? And how can they tackle these barriers? I think uh, it's, uh, it's reasonably straightforward. Once the senior management recognizes that there is an opportunity to innovate and there is a market to be served, I think the difficulties of uh, approaching these markets are not intercultural, but the ability to identify and immerse in consumer experience in these markets. Let me give a simple example. If I'm Unilever, Nestle, or P&G, I recognize that emerging markets are going to be significant for me 10 years from now. All three companies will have more than 50% of their revenues coming from emerging markets, be it China, India, Brazil, Mexico, Indonesia, Turkey, and so on, or Russia. I also recognize a significant portion of these populations will remain in the BOP realm. And therefore, I need to straddle the pyramid. I need to serve the top of the pyramid, but I also have to serve these people. Therefore, I have to create 
either a new format like sachets, which poor people can use, new products themselves. In other words, I have to innovate and I have to keep in mind four A's of penetrating of these emerging markets, like the traditional four P's of marketing. The four A's are awareness, access, affordability, and availability. Once you come to that conclusion, then operationalizing it becomes a lot easier. Then you ask the question, are there India-like markets? Can I use India as a source of innovation? Can I use South Africa as a source of innovation? So you don't have to participate in innovating for every market in the world. You identify critical markets, and then you innovate there and let it flow to other markets which have similar characteristics. Uh, have any of your ideas about the bottom of the pyramid changed since you wrote the book? What has surprised you most? I think uh, two things have surprised me most. Uh, even though in the book I said BOP can be a source of innovation, how much of the innovation is happening in the BOP and the rate at which people are moving to innovate, whether it's Google or Microsoft or Intel or AMD, uh, it's, it's quite amazing how fast it's moved. The second that I think is very interesting for me is uh, while I have talked about building ecosystems and so on, it is extremely clear today that no company, how, however big it is, can afford to do it alone there, purely for cost reasons, but much more importantly for access reasons. So you have to participate with local NGOs, you have to participate with micro-entrepreneurs, small and medium-sized enterprises, and in many cases, with the public sector. So the boundaries of the firm, which are primarily large global company, I'm going to do it myself, is becoming less and less possible. You have to partner. So it's connect and develop. It's continuously becoming part of an ecosystem, and in many cases, building the ecosystem. That, I think, was a second big surprise. And the third, uh, which I think is very interesting, uh, it is an extension of the ITC case or AMO and so on, how you can very dramatically build global scale without necessarily making the investment. How do you get 2.2 million farmers bring milk to 10,000 collection centers so that you become the largest processor of raw milk in the world. Amul does about 7 million kilograms of milk per day. That is possible because it's highly decentralized origination, fairly centralized processing, using logistics called refrigerated trucks or uh, information technology to make this happen. Same thing with ITC, uh, four or five million subsistence farmers, but collect and aggregate all their produce and make it world class. Similarly, Jaipur Rugs, which is a new case introduced into the book, Jaipur Rugs gets all the uh, <clears throat> wool from Australia, New Zealand, Argentina, China, and blends it with wool from Rajasthan. 
produces carpets, weavers are highly distributed, 40,000 of them in five states of India, and then sell all the rugs produced in the United States. So you can even create a global supply chain where raw materials are sourced from around the world, value-added activities created in a highly decentralized fashion uh, with significant quality control. And then the products are sold in the United States. So these have been interesting surprises, even though they were partly mentioned in the first version of the book. The rate at which these models are evolving, whether it is shipping flowers from Kenya or uh, harvesting soybean in India, how you can build virtual scale uh, has been quite interesting. Uh, one last question. Uh, what are the emerging rules of engagement for serving consumers at the bottom of the pyramid? I think uh, the rules are uh, fairly straightforward. Immersion in the consumer environment is quite critical. We need to continuously balance global standards of safety, quality, and such without any compromise for the bottom of the pyramid with the capacity to be locally responsive and more importantly, to work within the ecosystem and provide affordability. Third, that what you learn must be rapid. You first learn, then invest and scale, not, not just invest and hope to learn. So the cycle is experiment at low cost, learn fast, and scale rapidly so that you, you don't make investment hoping to learn. And finally, don't push business models, management practices, and most importantly, product and services that you're used to and accustomed to in the West onto these markets. In fact, the latest Harvard Business Review has a piece where GE is now recognizing that they have to create disruptive management models disrupting itself on its own management models if they want to succeed in countries like India. So the whole idea of building from within, learning rapidly, and willingness to disrupt your own dominant logic is fundamental to succeed here. Uh, Mr. Prahlad, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.